God, as we come through these last of the four kings of your people, Judah, the last of the kings before the great king, the Christ, would arrive, we pray for wisdom and we pray for attention. We pray that we might have the lesson of the destruction of your great city, your great temple, and your people impressed upon our hearts, not only for a day or for an hour, but for our lifetime, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. 2 Kings 23, starting in verse 31. Jehoahaz was 23 years old, and he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months. His mother's name was Hamatal, daughter of Jeremiah. She was from Libna. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as his fathers had done. Pharaoh Necho put him in chains at Riblah in the land of Hamath, so that he might not reign in Jerusalem, and he imposed on Judah a levy of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, son of Josiah, king in place of his father Josiah, and changed Eliakim's name to Jehoiakim. But he took Jehoahaz and carried him off to Egypt, and there he died. Jehoiakim paid Pharaoh Necho the silver and gold he demanded. In order to do so, he taxed the land and exacted the silver and gold from the people of the land according to their assessment. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. His mother's name was Zabita, daughter of Padiah. She was from Rumah, and he did evil in the eyes of the Lord just as his fathers had done. During Jehoiakim's reign, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, invaded the land, and Jehoiakim became his vassal for three years. But then he changed his mind and rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. The Lord sent Babylonian, that is Chaldean, Aramean, Moabite, and Ammonite raiders against him. He sent them to destroy Judah, in accordance with the word of the Lord proclaimed by his servants, the prophets. Surely these things happened to Judah according to the Lord's command in order to remove them from his presence because of the sins of Manasseh and all he had done, including the shedding of innocent blood. For he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord was not willing to forgive. As for the other events of Jehoiakim's reign and all he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? Jehoiakim rested with his fathers, and Jehoiachin, his son, succeeded him as king. The king of Egypt did not march out from his own country again because the king of Babylon had taken all his territory from the wadi of Egypt to the Euphrates. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months. His mother's name was Dehushda, daughter of Elnathan. She was from Jerusalem. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father had done. <clears throat> At that time, the officers of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, advanced on Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And Nebuchadnezzar himself came up to the city while his officers were besieging it. Jehoiachin, king of Judah, his mother, his attendants, his nobles, and his officials all surrendered to him. In the eighth year of the reign of the king of Babylon, he took Jehoiachin prisoner. As the Lord had declared, Nebuchadnezzar removed all the treasures from the temple of the Lord and from the royal palace and took away all the gold articles that Solomon, king of Israel, had made for the temple of the Lord. He carried into exile all Jerusalem, all the officers and fighting men, and all the craftsmen and artisans, a total of 10,000. Only the poorest people of the land were left. Nebuchadnezzar took Jehoiachin captive to Babylon. He also took from Jerusalem to Babylon the king's mother, his wives, his officials, and the leading men of the land. The king of Babylon also deported to Babylon the entire force of 7,000 fighting men, strong and fit for war, and a 1,000 craftsmen and artisans. 
he made Madaniah, Jehoiachin's uncle, king in his place, and changed his name to Zedekiah. Zedekiah was 21 years old, and he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. His mother's name was Hamatal, daughter of Jeremiah. She was from Libna. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as Jehoiakim had done. It was because of the Lord's anger that all this happened to Jerusalem and Judah, and in the end he thrust them from his presence. Now Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. So in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. He encamped outside the city and built siege works all around it. The city was kept under siege until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine in the city had become so severe that there was no food for the people to eat. Then the city wall was broken through, and the whole army fled at night through the gate between the two walls near the king's garden, though the Babylonians were surrounding the city. They fled towards the Arabah, but the Babylonian army pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his soldiers were separated from him and scattered, and he was captured. He was taken to the king of Babylon at Riblah, where sentence was pronounced on him. They killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. Then they put out his eyes, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. The ancient world was a messy place, was it not? In the seventh day of the fifth month, in the nineteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial army and official of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down. The whole Babylonian army, under the commander of the imperial guard, broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, carried into exile the people who remained in the city along with the rest of the populace and those who had gone over to the king of Babylon. But the commander left behind some of the poorest people of the land to work the vineyards and fields. The Babylonians broke up the bronze pillars, the movable stands, and the bronze sea that were at the temple of the Lord, and they carried the bronze to Babylon. They also took away the pots, shovels, wick trimmers, dishes, and all the bronze articles used in the temple service. The commander of the imperial guard took away the censers and sprinkling bowls, all that were made of pure gold or silver. The bronze from the two pillars, the sea and the movable stands, which Solomon had made for the temple of the Lord, was more than could be weighed. Each pillar was 27 feet high. The bronze capital on top of one pillar was four and a half feet high and was decorated with a network and pomegranates of bronze all around. The other pillar with its network was similar. The commander of the guard took as prisoners Sariah, the chief priest, Zephaniah, the priest next in rank, and the three doorkeepers. Of those still in the city, he took the officer in charge of the fighting men and five royal advisors. He also took the secretary, who was chief officer in charge of conscripting the people of the land, and 60 of his men who were found in the city. Nebuzaradan, the commander, took them all and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. There at Riblah, in the, in the land of Hamath, the king had them executed. So Judah went into captivity away from her land. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, appointed Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, to be over the people he had left behind in Judah. When all the army officers and their men heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah as governor, they came to Gedaliah at Mizpah. Ishmael, son of Nathaniah, Johanan, son of Kareah, Sariah, son of Tanhumath, the Netaphathite, 
Jazaniah, the son of, son of the Makathite, and their men, Gedaliah took an oath to reassure them and their men. Do not be afraid of the Babylonian officials, he said. Settle down in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it will go well with you. In the seventh month, however, Ishmael, son of Nathaniah, the son of Elishama, who was of royal blood, came with ten men and assassinated Gedaliah, and also the men of Judah and the Babylonians who were with him at Mizpah. At this, all the people from the least to the greatest, together with the army officers, fled to Egypt for fear of the Babylonians. Again, the, the spirit-inspired author of the book of Kings covers an incredible amount of time and just a relatively small amount of words. You have the final 22 years of the life of Judah covered in just a, a chapter and a half or so. And he covers the four last kings and then the final governor who was not a king at all in seemingly just a, a wave of a hand. And, and here we come across these four kings and the first of these four kings is Jehoahaz. Jehoahaz, though, is, is not long for the throne. He's a bad king and he's a short king. He's not short in stature, though perhaps he was, but he's short as far as how long he reigns. He reigns only for three years or for three months. As soon as he is, hits that three-month reign, Pharaoh decides he's done with Jerusalem. He's done with the Jewish people. And so he captures them. He captures the, the king, Jehoahaz. He carts them off into exile in Egypt, and that's the end of that. Jehoahaz is done with. But then the king, of the king of Egypt decides that he would like to decide who the next king of Judah is. And so he picks, he picks Jehoahaz's older brother, Eliakim. And to show that he is superior to Eliakim, he changes his name to Jehoiakim and places Jehoiakim on the throne. But Jehoiakim is really only a king in name only. He he has to pay taxes to a different king. If you're a king that pays taxes to a different king, you're not really a king at all. And so he has to pay taxes, a, a large amount of silver and a relatively smaller amount of gold. And he pays these taxes, but he doesn't really pay them. There's the implication that he taxes the people to pay these. And what is implied here in Kings is made explicit in Jeremiah the prophet's words, Jeremiah the prophet says that, that Jehoiakim was building a huge palace for himself, that he was decking out all of his own things in luxury, and he was taxing the poor people of the land in order to be able to send their money off to the king of Egypt, not have to spend his own money. You see, our politicians are not the first to get rich at the common man's expense. It's been going on for time immemorial, and so that's precisely what Jehoiakim does, but he's not only an oppressor of the poor, he's also a persecutor of the prophets, which makes him to be rather unpopular with the Lord. And so he decides then that he's a rather fickle king. Jehoiakim Jehoi realizes that, well, now Babylon is stronger than Egypt, so he switches, he switches allegiances very quickly from Pharaoh to Nebuchadnezzar, but then Nebuchadnezzar is in trouble, and so he decides, well, I would like to be a real king. I would like to be a real boy. It's kind of like Pinocchio. I want to be a real king. So he decides he's going to do that. He rebels against the Babylonian king. And this does not go very well. And this does not go very well for a specific reason which the, the author is very intent on telling us as you look back to verse 3 of chapter 24. The author says, Surely these things happened to Judah according to the Lord's command. In order to remove them from his presence, 
because of the sins of Manasseh and all he had done, skip forward just a little ways, the Lord was not willing to forgive. Because of all the sin that has already been done, the Lord is no longer willing to forgive. So the Lord sends these raiders. Some of them are from Babylon or Chaldea. They're from Ammon. They're from Moab. There's all these different raiders that come through. And what they do is they come through and they capture large amounts of people. And they send them off to Babylon. This is what we call the first deportation. There's three deportations in the exile. And in this first deportation is when uh, the four famous men, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are, are taken off into exile to the land of Babylon. And so he lives, but not for very long. And he dies. Jehoiakim dies right before his city is about to fall. And the prophet Jeremiah says that Jehoiakim was so unpopular that when he died, they dragged his body outside the city and they gave him the same burial they would give a donkey. And then his son, Jehoiachin, becomes king. And Jehoiachin is not long for the throne himself. Only three months into his reign, he and his mother and his wives and his officials and all the nobles, they all surrender and hand themselves over to the king of Babylon. And this final rebellion, this final attack, brings trouble upon the people of Israel. And then we see that the king of Babylon comes in and he does precisely what had been promised. He comes in and he loots the palace and the temple. This brings us back to the time of Hezekiah. Recall that Hezekiah was a good king, but he, he had one glaring flaw towards the end of his life. After the Lord had saved Hezekiah from the Assyrians and reestablished him as a, a real king, after all that had been done, Hezekiah forgets that the Lord is his defender, even if just for a moment. And he decides he would like to be friends with the Babylonians because the Babylonians were enemies with the Assyrians and the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so he invites these, these diplomats from Babylon to come in. He wants to impress them. And so he gives them a tour. He gives them a tour of his palace and shows them all of his wealth. He gives them a tour of the temple and shows them all of the temple's wealth. And then the prophet Isaiah comes to Hezekiah. And he is none too pleased with Hezekiah at all. And we read this, Isaiah said to the king, 2 Kings 20, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Now, a century later, the words of the prophet Isaiah have come true. The palace is looted, the temple is looted, and his descendants, including Jehoiachin, are hauled off into exile. This is the second deportation. The prophet Ezekiel was deported in exile during the second deportation. But this reminds us again of one of the key themes of the book of Kings, that God always keeps his word. It took a hundred years. God waited a hundred years, but he kept his word given through the prophet Isaiah to King Hezekiah. He does precisely what he said that he was going to do. The prophet Isaiah has an immaculate record 
and having his words be true, even if the vast majority of them happened after he had died. And we recall some of the accuracies of the prophecies of Isaiah as we come into the Advent season. We remember the great prophecy of the child who would be born to a virgin, which took far longer than 100 years to come, but indeed came to pass. We'll come back to Jehoiachin next week, Lord willing. But for now we move on because the author moves on. Jehoiachin goes off into exile and the king of Babylon does what Pharaoh had done before. He decides, I would like to decide who's going to be king. So he picks a man named Madaniah and changes his name to Zedekiah and he makes him king. But again, king only in name. And Zedekiah reigns 11 years just like Jehoiakim had reigned before him, and then like Jehoiakim before him, he decides he would like to be his own man. So he rebels against Babylon as well. The kings of Israel and Judah are not very bright sometimes. They do not learn well from history. And so the king of Babylon decides that's it. I am done with this city, Jerusalem. I am done with this country, Judah. I'm going to crush them once and for all. And so the whole weight of the Babylonian army comes to bear upon the city of Jerusalem. He lays siege to Jerusalem for a year and a half. The siege lasts so long, people are able to go out and desert, but there's nobody can go in. And by the end of a year and a half, the people are starving. So Zedekiah does, I suppose, what any somewhat reasonable person would do. He runs. He burrows through the through the wall of the city, and he and some of his choice men run, and they literally head for the hills. But they're caught. And where are they caught? But they're caught near the city of Jericho. Then they're brought to Nebuchadnezzar. And they're brought to Nebuchadnezzar, and it's a, gru- it's a gruesome scene, isn't it? His sons are brought, and he's brought, and sentence is pronounced. And Zedekiah is made to watch as his sons are executed before his eyes. And so that people might know that this is what happens to rebels and that his last sight might be his sons being killed, they gouge out his eyes, put him in bronze shackles, and haul him off to exile. And all of this is precisely what the prophet Ezekiel had said was going to happen. Listen carefully to what Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 12, 13. I will spread my net over Zedekiah, and he shall be taken in my snare. And I will bring him to Babylon, the land of the Chaldeans, yet he shall not see it, and he shall die there. And then following that, it's a terrible scene. The Babylonians go into Jerusalem, the city of David, and they destroy everything. People are killed, houses are burned, buildings are burned, the palace is burned, even the temple of the Lord is burned. And people are taken both from Jerusalem and from the countryside. Anybody who's anybody, anybody who has any skill, anybody who has any ability, any wealth whatsoever, anything is taken away. And only a scattered few are left. Enough to try to keep the wild animals from taking over. And so Israel and Judah are finally gone. Then we have, not another king, but we have a governor, Gedaliah, and, or Gedaliah. Gedaliah is a good guy, but he's not a king. He becomes a governor. He's a governor because Judah doesn't pretend to even be an independent country anymore. But he's a good guy. He trusts the Lord. 
the prophet Jeremiah said, if you settle down and wait 70 years, the exile will be over. And so he trusts. And he trusts, but the people don't trust him. And his telling the people to settle down angers the Jewish nationalists, and they come up and they assassinate him. And they become afraid because they've done this, and they know they don't stand a chance, and so they run. And when they run, they kidnap the prophet Jeremiah, and they carry him off to Egypt as well. Presumably, he stayed there until he died. And when you come to the, the last portion of what we've read here, verse 26, it's all over. Just like that, it's all over. Israel had lived in the promised land in Canaan for 700 years. For 425 years, David or one of his sons had sat on the throne of Israel or Judah. For nearly all that time, Solomon's temple had stood as a sign of the presence of God with his people. But no more. Now it's over. No more country, no more king, no more temple. It's all over. There's so much significance here. There are so many things to learn here. I think if you, if you want to boil it down to one simple, simple reason, why, why did this happen? It comes down to this lesson that we see again and again and again in the Scriptures. Idolatry always turns blessing into curse. And I want us to step back. I want us to see the, see the big picture. I know, I know that it's easy to get bogged down in, in the details of kings a little bit, and, and that's okay. If you read it a few times, you'll start to pick it up better. The Lord never promises that his word is going to be easy, only that it's going to be perfect and beneficial. So sometimes it takes work. But if you step back from, if you step back from the, the smaller episodes that we see in Kings, and you step back and you see it not just in the big picture of Kings, not just at the backdrop of Deuteronomy, but if you see it against the, the backdrop of the whole Old Testament, you get, you get a, new, a new perspective on what has happened. And when you look at that whole picture, when you look at the, the whole backdrop of the entire Old Testament, you begin to think that it was all a waste. It's all for nothing. You know, the whole story begins with Abraham. And where does it begin? It begins with Abraham. And where does Abraham live? He lives in Ur of the Chaldeans. That is that Abraham lives in Babylon. And where have his children gone back to? They've gone back to Babylon. It's like we've, we've started back at square one. What, what has the last thousand plus years been all about? It just seems like it's all a waste. Abraham had been called by faith to follow God to the promised land. He gets to the promised land, and the Lord says, your, your descendants will inherit this land. And Abraham had to take it on faith, because the only part of the promised land he ever owned was the tomb he buried his wife in. And his descendants, they end up in Egypt in slavery for 400 years, but then they come out with Moses, and Joshua with the ark crosses them across the Jordan River at flood stage on dry ground, and they begin to take over the promised land, first at Jericho, and then farther, and through the time of the judges, God preserves them, and then Samuel promises a king, and David becomes that king, and he, he subdues the land of the promise, and he receives a promise himself that he would have an eternal king over an eternal kingdom, and then Solomon is this great king 
and he extends, the, he extends the border of Israel all the way from the Wadi of Egypt to the Euphrates River, a significant kingdom. And then he, he accumulates wealth and prestige that makes him the envy of the world. But his crowning achievement is that he builds a temple to the Lord, the God of Abraham, and the presence of God Himself fills the temple. God dwells with His people. But now it's all over. Everything goes backwards. The temple is burned. The Scripture says that God expelled them from His presence. And all the wealth is gone. And all the territory is gone. Nebuchadnezzar is the anti-Solomon. He destroys everything Solomon accomplished. He takes all of Solomon's wealth, all of his, all of his utensils, all those details are significant. He takes all of Solomon's wealth, he burns down Solomon's temple, and all the land that Solomon had from the Wadi of Egypt to the Euphrates River now belongs to Nebuchadnezzar. And there is no more, there is no more son of David on the throne. There's no more city of David the promise seems to have failed. And, and now the land that had vomited out the Canaanites, as God says, now seems to have vomited out the children of Abraham as well. There's even richer significance. Where, where was Israel's very first victory in the promised land? But it was at Jericho. Where is the final defeat of Israel's last king? It's at Jericho. And then you see that things roll back even farther because you, you see where's the last place people from the people of God run to, but they run back to Egypt. They'd come out of Egypt with a great prophet. They kidnap a great prophet, and they go back to Egypt. And now you have the land promised to Abraham's children as he had come out of Babylon. It's emptied of Abraham's children, and it's full of Babylonians. Everything has gone backwards. It's like it was all worthless. And what caused it? Why is it? Why is it that it seems like it was all a waste? Why, as we remember back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Joshua and the judges, Gideon and Brock and Samson and Samuel and David and Solomon and Hezekiah and Josiah and all the rest, why does it seem like it's all a waste? What went wrong? Here's what went wrong. It's very simple. God's people stopped worshiping God and they started worshiping idols. Idolatry always turns blessing into curse. Think of just one more example, an example that is intentionally mirroring this example. You step back even farther, you go back to the very beginning and God had made the first man and the first woman and he placed them in the first promised land, so to speak, in Eden. And there they lived and there they lived in a lush land. And God dwelt with them. And He dwelt with them on the condition that He would dwell with them and they would live forever so long as, they, as, so long as God was their God. And how would God know that He was their God? But there was one tree in all this beautiful, lavish garden, just one tree they couldn't eat from. And that one tree said to them and to God, God is still God and Adam and Eve are not. It's not unlike Israel, is it? He had placed them in a lush land. He had dwelt with them. He had, he had been with them. He had promised, you will live in this land and I will be with you until I am no longer your God. 
And Adam and Eve ate and bore the curse. And Israel ceased to worship God. She bore the curse as well. Both were kicked out of God's good land. And both to the east. Sin always expels from God's presence. And sin always turns blessing into curse. You know, one of the significant things about kings is that it's our history. If you, if you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, then Abraham is your father, right? Father Abraham had many sons. And David's son is your king. And if you are in Christ, then this is your history. This is more your history than American history is your history. Because your first allegiance, praise God, is to God's kingdom. This is our history. And it is right for us to learn lessons from our history. And one of the chief lessons of the book of Kings is that God is to be feared. We see God is fearful. When you come to the very end, you, you read this line that I think sends a little tingle down my spine. God was not willing to forgive. When Adam and Eve were kicked out of Eden, God didn't say it's fine. He was not willing to forgive. When Manasseh sinned and all the kings before him and after him, the Lord ceases to be willing to forgive. Nothing says that we are immune from being like them. Now, I've, had, I've, I've been talking, i had the privilege lately of, of talking with and, and walking, so to speak, with a young man who's decided he's going to put He's going to put the wickedness of his ways behind him, and he's going to begin to walk in righteousness. And I've had opportunity, I think, a couple of times to encouragingly correct him because he said a couple of times, I'm going to put those things to bed. And I said, no, things that get put to bed wake up again. Things that get put to death do not. The problem with Israel is that she was often good at putting idols to bed, but she never put them to death once and for all. And they came back. And they came back, and they put Israel to death. The Lord says in Romans 8.13, Paul writes, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Israel never, Judah never finally put the deeds of the body to death. We ought to put the deeds of the body to death sinful way of our lives to death. Because there's nothing that says we cannot be like them. You might say, no, 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 see, see pastor, that, you're, you're Old Testament pastor right now. We, we're New Testament people now. There, there's, a, there's a difference. We, we believe in the perseverance of the saints. Once you're saved, you're always saved. We, we believe in election. Yes, we do. I, I am reformed through and through. I think by six and a half years, you know that is true. I believe that once you're saved, you're always saved. The perseverance of the saints, the elect are going to be saved. I absolutely believe all that. But the Lord says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Lest you fall. The author of Hebrews says it like this. Hebrews 3, 12 to 14. Take care, brothers. That's a New Testament book, by the way. Take care, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away 
from the living God. They exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You know, just like with Adam and Eve, the story of Judah and David's sons ends on a positive note of hope. But that's for next week. Just like it would be very foolish to skip over Genesis 3, 1 to 15, so it is very foolish for us to skip by one of the principal lessons of the book of Kings, that is, that God is to be feared. So let that just sink in. As in your mind's eye, you see the glory of Solomon's temple in flames, in the homes of even the common people being ripped down, in lines and lines of thousands and thousands and thousands of children of Abraham pulled from their homes and hauled off to a foreign land. The Lord is to be feared. Adam and Eve were idolaters and they were cursed. Judah gave in to idolatry and she was cursed. Nothing says that we cannot be different and so we ought to take a very simple lesson from a very terrible chapter in the people of God. Idolatry always turns blessing to curse. And idolatry always kills those who do not fear the Lord. So fear the Lord. Put your idols to death so they won't kill you. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we just scratched the surface of the significance of so many of these events. That the land promised to Abraham would over a thousand years later be emptied of his children should bring us near to weeping. It brought our Savior to weeping to think of the city of Jerusalem in his own day being destroyed. So it should cause us a great sadness to look back upon our history, to see the royal city in flames, and to see the promise hanging, it seems, by just a thread. And yet we have hope. We have hope that just as the word of Isaiah was held true and just as the word of Ezekiel was held true and just as the word of Jeremiah was held true, so the promise of the Christ holds true. And we have seen him. And we know his name. And he is our king. And so we pray that you would cause us to have a new heart, as the prophet Jeremiah said. To be more faithful. To be more diligent in slaying the idols. And quicker to have your praise upon our lips. Help us to stand firm until the end. To be careful that we do not have an idolatrous, unbelieving heart. But instead to walk in the newness of life which your spirit has given to us. Bring us the comfort of the new covenant, yes. Bring us the comfort of the Spirit, yes. But let us be watchful. Give us the grace of fearing you in wisdom, 
working out our salvation with that fear and trembling for your glory and for our greatest joy, which will be ours in Christ. Amen. We'll stand together now.